would you be surprised to hear that one in five British school children don't understand where basic food such as milk comes from? I was surprised as well, and I think there's sort of more figures around that that kind of will probably catch your eye as well. You know, over a third think that squash is better for them than milk. One in ten children have never been on a farm. Country File and Blue Peter presenter Helen Skelton joins us later with details of a new free book that may help. And with urea possibly facing a ban on its use, a UK company's patented technology, which it claims will allow plants to fix nitrogen direct from the air. We've found a way to take this bacteria inside any crop and it goes inside the cells. So that's unique to anywhere in the world. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, hope you've had a good week. It's looking rather dry and rather chilly in the country this week. There's a detailed weather forecast for the week to come later, plus a markets and prices update from Kit Dickinson from Openfield and some timely agronomy advice from Sean Sparling. Now, as you may have heard, DEFRA's consulting on the future use of nitrogen fertiliser urea as part of an attempt to reduce pollution from farming's ammonia emissions. Sean Sparling will be looking at this for us in a few minutes. And urea is the most commonly used form of nitrogen fertiliser in the world. It's an important tool for farmers, offering several advantages when used alongside ammonium nitrate. It's safer to handle. Uh, but a UK company's patented technology, which it claims will allow plants to fix nitrogen directly from the air. Work first started at Nottingham University, but it's now being developed by Exotic Technologies. It's already being used successfully on some crops in the USA, and the company's working on using the product in the UK. Peter Blessard, CEO of Exotic Technologies, tell us how it works. What we have is a, a food-grade bacteria. It grows normally in nature inside sugarcane. So we're giving nature a helping hand. And we've found a way to take this bacteria inside any crop and it goes inside the cells. So that's unique to anywhere in the world. Uh, Exotics developed this technology and the way it works inside the crop, inside the cell, is it's exchanging sugars from the cell through photosynthesis and it's actually then giving nitrogen back, just like rhizobia do in the nodules on legumes. It's exactly the same process, but unlike many other companies, we've managed to find a way to do this in, in any crop at a cellular level. So it makes the crop more efficient. It's not bringing up nitrogen from the soil. Our technology doesn't persist in the soil. It dies in the soil. It only lives inside the crop. So there's no risk, for instance, like with urea, of this getting into the watercourse? Exactly. And uh, that is one of the drivers that when we saw this many years ago, uh, it's from Nottingham University, uh, the technology, from a professor, Ted Cocking. Uh, he worked with Norman Borlaug, believe it or not, and they believe that microbes will feed the world. But there's no way this technology can get into any into the atmosphere or into the water courses. And we are working with one or two governments internationally that we feel will be very, very keen on this. We're in trials. We are European government at the moment. You started off with this being used in crops in the USA. What kind of crops has it been used on and what kind of crops could it be used on? It could be used on any crop from grass to forestry and everything in between. Uh, at the moment, as a commercial organisation, we've gone for corn and soya in America. And the reason we're in America first, it's not that we didn't want to start in UK. We have a major licence partner in UK. Um, 
actually based in your part of the world. It's ADM Agriculture. We've done a lot of trials in UK and we've done a lot of trials across Europe. But we started in America because they, we have a liquid product and it's ideal for infuro application. And your listeners will understand infuro is as they put the seeds into the ground, the, uh, they drip a liquid over the seeds, which is pop-up fertilizers and other agrochemicals. Our technology is in a tank mix with those going in the ground. For the UK market and European markets, we need to have uh, either a, a seed coating and or a foliar application. And we will have that ready for spring 2021. A foliar application is a spray. So you supply the farm with powder, presumably, then it's mixed and sprayed, yeah? The, the idea, correct. The idea at the moment is to supply... Uh, a, a powder that can be resuscitated and then it goes into a liquid that's applied in a, a tank mix. It gives far better shelf life. It's very powerful as well. This is grams per acre. This is not tonnage. But we may supply a liquid, so we may finish the product in the UK or we're manufacturers in the UK, but we'll have a liquid that's got good shelf life then rather than shipping liquid around the world. It may make sense in the UK to go with a liquid portfolio or we could supply the dry and mix it on, on site. That will be decided very soon. We're currently in trials in South Africa and Argentina with that product because it's the growing season now, and then from them trials we'll decide what we're doing in the spring with our partners. What's been the reaction from farmers and food groups who've been trialling this? Uh, food groups that have heard about it, and we have trialled in the UK with some bakery groups, that I won't mention due to NDAs, but they said it was some some of the best results they've ever seen, and that's in over 25 years. The person that told us that had been there 25 years. The major food groups I've met have said they would pay a premium to put this on their crops, as they call them. Why? Because it's it's a triple impact. It gives the grower a benefit in the crop and a yield. It gives the environment a benefit, and the food groups will be able to claim Obviously, they're doing something greener for the environment. And we're looking at this being available next year. Where can we find out more information? Please feel free to come back to myself and or look at azotictechnologies.com. We have a good website. And uh, from that, we will direct them through our distribution partners in UK, Stroke Europe. Peter Blathart, CEO, Azotic Technologies. Many thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. All the best. Sean Sparling, Sparling Agronomy Services is here. Good morning, Sean. Can I get your thoughts about urea and the DEFRA consultation in a moment, Sean, after we talk agronomy? Yes, very good morning to you, Steve. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating subject and one which we need to look at far more closely than we have done in the past. All of these areas, really, we should never dismiss this sort of science. We need to know far more than we already do as this science develops moving forward. And we have had bacteria, of course, before to apply as a foliar spray. There was a product a few years ago called Twin N which contained three nitrogen fixing species of bacteria and the thing that fascinates me about this is if you take a gram of soil which is a tiny tiny amount not only are there more living organisms in that one gram of soil than there are people on the face of the earth but that one gram of soil contains over 40,000 different species of bacteria each one as different as an apple to a giraffe 
And anybody in science today who can isolate specific species out of those 40,000 within that one gram of soil, to me, that is a wonder of modern science and we should embrace that. I'm going to come on to nitrogen again in a little bit more detail a little bit later on because I want to talk about the urea consultation. So agronomy then, a whistle-stop tour. All seed rape, diseases are still out there. Assess and prioritise these untreated, more backward fields with a lower disease rating. And it is now getting cold enough for the use of propitious curb flow 500 astra curb type product just check tank mix guides if you're thinking about mixing the fungicide in with the propizamide most fungicides will mix quite happily but just check the label and remember if you're going to put straight propizamide onto a crop you can do it onto a frost if you've got a fungicide or an insecticide in you need to wait until the rime's gone and the crop leaf is drying to give the fungicide or the insecticide a chance to do its job so where you have crops now that look likely to make it through to harvest, um, now would be the time, this time onwards, to get your curb flow and your astro curb on. I am still finding rake winter stem weevil about on my sticky traps and my water traps. So if you're finding them, don't ignore them. They can do an awful lot of damage to the crop. Um, winter wheat, any late herbicide, just grab as you can really going forward. Any crops that have already had a frost or two, they should be fine sprayed onto a drying leaf. And it's rarely dry enough really much before 11 o'clock at the moment and stop spraying by about 3.30 if there's a frost forecast but on those smaller crops the more backward crops the ones just emerging who haven't really had much of a frost on them or who caught that minus two Wednesday night into Thursday just take a little bit more care with those and don't go rushing in there's plenty of time things are very wet out there in the field certain fields are just sitting absolutely sodden and it's not because we've had a lot of rain i've had less than a mill and a half in the last seven days it's the result of last autumn when we got between the 23rd of september and the end of december over 5,000 tons of water per hectare just the weight of the water itself will have pushed down and slumped to eight or nine or ten inches down and just slumped it all down so the water can't get away as efficiently and as properly as it normally would that's why people are saying that field's never sat that wet it's because of that damage which has been caused by the weight of water there's no point subsoiling soils like that it's like pulling your finger through a bowl of custard or plasticine but a deep time pull through next summer after harvest might well be the right thing to do. A very good idea to start breaking down that compacted layer and to begin to repair these soils. Slugs still out there in patches, some areas where I'd never expected to see them. So that means it's important to stay vigilant, keep your eyes open and don't let your guard down. And the yellow rust and mildew that we've talked about over the last few weeks is definitely not enjoying the current spell of weather. And that is why we don't put a fungicide on, because this bit of weather is sorting the job out for us. So... Not an awful lot to report out in the field. It's getting a bit samey now. We will see what the next seven days bring us. Great. Thank you, Sean. Uh, so, Urea, then, what's the situation? So, currently, there's a live government consultation on the future of Urea. Type Urea consultation into your search engine. That will get you to where you want to be. And that gives you the opportunity to have your say and have your voice heard on the future of Urea as a nitrogen source in English agriculture. I say England because, of course, Scotland, Ireland and Wales have devolved governments, so they will make their own decision on this. And the UK government are looking at three options for solid Urea fertilizer either banning it outright, introducing closed application periods or introducing the statutory use of urease inhibitors 
or probably a combination of the last two if it isn't a ban. So the government have committed to reducing their ammonia emissions by another 16% in the next couple of years and 88% of our ammonia emissions come from agriculture, mostly from organic manures and slurry, but around 20% comes from our use of manufactured mineral fertilisers. We use two sources of, of nitrogen in the UK, urea and ammonium nitrate, and we import a massive percentage. We don't manufacture enough to support the domestic production market. Now, the government argue, and it is indeed a fact, that if you banned urea, you would automatically reduce our ammonia emissions. That is incontrovertible. That is a fact. But there must be other ways of managing it to reduce those emissions. Why do we use nitrogen in the first place? It's the most important plant food. Every plant requires nitrogen nitrogen to grow if it hasn't got enough nitrogen it doesn't produce enough seed therefore it doesn't produce enough yield it's essential for growth essential for protecting food supplies food security and as the main food source it increases the chlorophyll levels and the photosynthesis potential and that protects and promotes yield if we had an outright ban that's self-explanatory we would have to move everything into organic manures and ammonium nitrate that would probably cost more for farmers in the short run we would have to import an extra 20 25 percent of our nitrogen as ammonium nitrate over and above what we're already importing now and that puts huge pressure on farmers and the markets because with brexit is that even possible is it viable economically is it an option because we've got no deal with the eu at the moment and the costs would increase rapidly and drastically because there would be tariffs placed on top of it Close spreading periods, we're already doing that uh, unofficially. If you've got a two degree soil, it takes four days for urea to go to the phase of ammonium and then to ammonia, which is the thing that volatilizes. That gives us plenty of time to manage it. If the soils are 10 degrees, that process takes two days. That still gives us plenty of time. If the temperatures are 20 degrees, that happens in less than a day. So cold, wet conditions is how we use urea now and preferably incorporate it immediately after application. But of course, we can't incorporate it in a standing crop. So calendar date is like having a no weeing section in a swimming pool. It's irrelevant. It is temperature dependent. It's workable. And we're doing that now. No farmer wants to apply urea in warm conditions because that means it wastes money through volatilization. He's losing nitrogen. We understand cold conditions. If we combine that with the use of urease inhibitors, we can reduce ammonia losses in urea even more because the urease inhibitor keeps the nitrogen in contact with the soil for longer. That increases the adsorption and the diffusion time and gives it time to go down rather than up. But even with the use of an inhibitor, the losses of ammonia from urea are still two and a half times higher than from ammonium nitrate. Ammonium nitrate around 2% and a urease inhibited urea still around 75 to 8%. So that's what they're looking at. Go onto that site if you want your voice heard. Type in urea consultation and have your say. Lovely. Thanks, Sean. Uh, see you same time next week. Sean's website, if you want to contact him, is sasagronomy.co.uk. Many children sadly don't know where their food comes from, including something as basic as milk. Helen Skelton grew up on a dairy farm and more recently has co-presented Blue Peter and Country File. She's teamed up with Arla to help educate youngsters and they've produced a free book aimed at key stages one and two, telling the story of Johnny and Jelly, a farmer and his cow. Helen, morning. Welcome to the farming programme. Thank you for having me. I was slightly surprised, I have to say, to see this statistic that one in five British school children don't know where their food comes from. That seems amazing. Yeah. 
I was surprised as well. And I think there's sort of more figures around that that kind of will probably catch your eye as well. You know, over a third think that squash is better for them than milk. One in 10 children have never been on a farm. And I think you're surprised if you're in and around farming or agriculture. But let's not forget that there's, you know, millions of kids that live in the middle of cities who have very full and rich lives doing other things. They're just not necessarily one field away from a cow. And I think it would be wrong to kind of suggest that this is about saying to kids, right, everybody, you need to sit down and and learn all about where food comes from. This is just about empowering kids. You know, I've got two small children, a three and a five-year-old. Kids are very inquisitive. They're very engaged. And I think they come at things with a brilliant attitude. You know, sometimes as adults, we're guilty of thinking, why won't something work? But kids don't do that. So this is kind of just, you know, this book's been created to give some kids a bit of background knowledge, a bit more insight to hopefully mean that they're better armed to make better food decisions. So tell us a little bit about the story of this book, because it's a it's a farmer and a, and a cow. Now, the farmer's real, isn't he? It's a real person. The cow is also real. So, oh. um, <laughs> yeah, Alla is a farmer owned dairy cooperative. Johnny is one of the farmers in that cooperative. Jelly is one of his cows. And um, Johnny takes jelly, and you might know the cow, he takes the cow to schools. It's been in, you know, plays at Christmas. And Johnny just gets such a, a massive buzz out of introducing kids to cows. I mean, I was lucky I grew up on a dairy farm on the edge of the Lake District, so I was around cows my whole life. And I just think they're beautiful. The lashes, the way they walk, everything about them. But obviously Johnny says he comes up against lots of children who never get that close to a cow and he really gets something out of introducing kids to these gorgeous animals and it kind of spiraled from there his adventures are real this storybook has been created about you know sort of what happens in a day for a dairy cow and you know I spoke to him the other day and he was so passionate and he was so excited about being able to tell kids about this he he just told some lovely stories about how kids see a cow and then they're hooked you know they're engaged they're inquisitive so yeah, he's he's thrilled to be part of this book and we're thrilled to be encouraging people to download it for free. Because you grew up, as you said, on a, on a dairy farm and you kind of saw what was going on around you every day. And you, I guess, had the, that connection between where it starts and where it ends up in your cereal at breakfast time, didn't you? Kids not necessarily doing that. No, well, I mean, I, <laughs> I like to think that I've had a really broad and varied life and been all over the world. But the reality is, I'd never bought a pint of milk until I was 24 and I couldn't afford it. I went to the co-op and I had, you know, pens and I couldn't buy it because I'd never bought milk. You know, I'd always just gone down the yard with the jug, dipped it in the tanker and drank raw milk. That's how I was brought up. And that was just my childhood. But it's funny, like I've only realised since I've had my kids that I have to make the effort to take them to my parents to take them out to the field because I took it for granted that I was kind of around those animals and, you know, they're part an extension of the family. So, yeah, I was, I feel very lucky to have had that childhood. And it's probably the one thing that haunts my dad now. He's like, oh, why don't you, why don't you grow up on the farm with the kids so that they get that too? And I'm like, well... Maybe, Dad, maybe one day, but not at the minute. <laughs> now, this book explains the journey a little bit, but it's done in a really nice way. How can the members of the public get hold of the book? It's free. It's on the Arla website, so arlafood.co.uk. You can download it. It's beautifully illustrated. Uh, yeah, my kids were flicking through it this morning. You know, there's messages of sustainability there. There's messages of what happens in the day. Um, it's a really interesting book. It gives a really nice insight, and I hope people 
enjoy reading it as much as we've enjoyed putting it together. And there is a charity connection to the book, isn't there, courtesy of Arla? Yeah, so as part of their ongoing commitment to trying to help kids learn more about where their food comes from, Arla were giving, uh, donating 15,000 healthy breakfasts to a charity called Magic Breakfast, who help kids who might not get a healthy, nutritious breakfast at the start of the day. Magic Breakfast are trying to answer that. So hopefully uh, 15,000 more breakfasts will be in front of children going forward. Excellent. So the story of Johnny and Jelly, tell us again where you can get it. Allafoods.co.uk, you can download it for free. Enjoy the book. Know that your download is going to help a commitment to um, Magic Breakfast for Charity. And uh, yeah, enjoy. Helen Skelton, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. To the markets now. Good morning, Kit Dickinson from Openfield. Well, good morning, Steve. Another week of fresh contract highs for UK futures and physical markets, with Matif also breaking new ground before profit-taking pre the US Thanksgiving holiday paired gains. China has been in the news again as one of the US bank forecasts that their demand would increase exponentially by 2023, with reports that they have already bought new crop barley from France. With the Northern Hemisphere winter crops entering dormancy, the focus has shifted to South America, which is still moisture deficit despite the sporadic rain showers. US wheat crop ratings were worse than expected as it continues to dry, whilst Russian and Ukrainian crops have entered dormancy in less than ideal growing conditions. The AHDB released their latest 2020-21 balance sheets, which showed that the UK wheat supply demand is still in deficit. Probably more of a concern is whether the 2.4 million metric tonnes of maize imports will be achieved, with only 613,000 imported by the end of September. The market can ill afford a southern hemisphere crop problem, which would repel US prices to a level in an attempt to ration demand. We are not there yet, and we should reflect that prices have been much higher than current levels, just not in the last five years. Malting barley markets continue to see some trade interest for replacement parcels of barley as deliveries are made and quality issues arise. There have been the odd consumer inquiring for specific quality at a limited volume. It remains a very busy period for export hubs with buyers keen to get all cargoes moved before Christmas and the current planned end to the transition period with the EU. This keeping a steady rhythm of grain movements near port facilities. Talks remain ongoing and it is still not clear what the rules of engagement will be for the new year, let alone for the new crop position. With feed values continuing to trade at high levels, this has put a flaw under malting barley values and premiums depending on the parcel quality and indeed location. With new tiering post-current lockdown scheduled to be announced, the UK government and consumers will be keen to see the impact this is likely to have on demand through the next few weeks. Crop 21 has been discussed this week in a sign that there is some light at the end of the tunnel for malting barley. Looking at all seed rate, UK markets have been relatively static this week, with a muted start to the week turning to more negative tone not seen for a week. So as the global oilseed complex digested the latest China data and updates on the COVID-19 vaccines. With the initial amphora fading, attention has switched to the Chinese cancellation of some soybean shipments for the new year. With the market and trade taking this as a sign of the slowdown in demand for the world's largest exporter and values are adjusting accordingly. With a short trading week in the US due to Thanksgiving activity had been on the back foot and news of cancellations came forward. Matif Rapeseed Futures touched contract highs helped by tightness in the sunseed market before turning lower on demand concerns with India, also looking to reduce palm oil imports. This is adding demand. Looking forward to feed wheat prices this week, December 191 to 193. February 193 to 195, 
May 196 to 198, and looking forward to November 21 new crop 157 to 159. Milling wheat premiums have reduced slightly and currently sit at 16 to 18 pounds. Oilseed rate for December 355 to 357, February 358 to 360, with no carry forward to May at 358 to 360. Feed barley for December is 141 to 143, with the same price for February at 141 to 143, and a slight rise into May 143 to 145. New crop November 21 feed barley is 138 to 140. Malting premiums are currently £10 for a 185 nitrogen and £20 for a 165 nitrogen. Thanks as ever, Kit. So we know what the markets are doing. What about the weather? The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. With high pressure for the first half of the week, temperatures ranging from 5 Celsius at night to 9 Celsius during the day and staying that way all week. Light winds all week, mostly from the south to southwest and barely getting into double figures MPH. It's also a dry week with barely any rain forecast. Some sunshine today, but cloudy for the rest of the week with perhaps a break for a bit of sun on Wednesday. I'm Steve Orchard. That's it for this week. Have a good week. Stay safe. Stay positive.